good evening. Good evening. Everyone. Uh, so let's see, we start with chanting. You have the chance and feel inclined, please join us. If not, please take it or something. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you are their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Practice hidden in the forest in sacred solitude, Longchenpa. Samsara and Nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya. Dream Aosir, stainless light, I pray at your feet. Grant your blessing so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. So in Mahayana Buddhism, what's the, the best thing that ever happened? What's the best thing in the world? Nothing. <laughs> Damn. That was, even, that was good. I was going to say Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta. Was that it? Yes. <laughs> Bodhicitta is the most amazing thing that ever occurred. COVID disappears. On a Buddhism point of view. Same thing. <laughs> same thing as nothing. Everything and nothing. Bodhicitta is the most important thing of everything in the Dharma, from Mahayana path, Mahayana tradition point of view. And uh, it's just this crazy idea that we should be altruistic. I mean, like imagine that coming about like this extreme altruism coming about thousands of years ago, people coming up with this idea of just like being completely dedicated to the benefit of others. It's really, really quite amazing thing to occur, that shift totally off the charts from uh, evolution point of view of uh, preservation of the species species and uh, survival of the fittest you know totally the reverse of that it's like anti uh, uh, you know totally off that trajectory just mind-blowing idea of completely giving yourself to uh, other sentient beings by becoming enlightened for them so, but before we dive into Longchenpa's wonderful presentation of Bodhicitta, any uh, general comments or questions or suggestions about 
anything relevant to what we've been going through. Mary Beth. I just had um, a reflection on Chris's question from last week. It was something about um, the three jewels and then adding the fourth jewel in for the Vajrayana, something like that, sort of paraphrasing. And I was just thinking how um, that idea of the teacher as being like the fourth is really kind of what those other three already are. So I liked that sort of ties it all up in a bow, but you know, don't forget what's in the box. Right, right. Is, is the sum greater than the parts? Is the, yeah, is the sum greater than the sum of the parts? It's a little bit like the kayas, right? Where you have the, the Dharmakaya, Samogakaya, and Nirmanakaya, and then you have this thing called the Swabhavgakaya that's like the union of all the kayas. Yeah. But still has some something different. Right. Interestingly enough. So, uh, good point. Thank you, Mary Beth. Anything else? I have just sort of a comment or question or something I'm struggling with, which is, I guess, kind of um, a little bit of a feeling of hopelessness, because on the one hand, it's this idea of um, wishing that all sentient beings, you know, wishing with all my heart that all sentient beings can attain Buddhahood and working toward that, and then also continually being reminded that there's only going to be one Buddha every, like, quadrillion years or whatever, and so the idea that all these billions of beings, it, it's trying to keep up the sort of optimism of working toward all these billions of beings attaining this thing that it seems like comes along so rarely. So I just, um, I'm struggling with that a little bit. Hey, what other people think about that? You should know that um, it's not only <clears throat> this, this place is not the only place to become a Buddha in. So there's infinite number of universes in all directions, interpenetrating in all ways, in all times. And so there's infinite number of Buddha, Buddhas of the order of Shakyamuni going on all the time so and you see this in, in the Mahayana Sutras there's these neat sections where the Buddha uh, gives the prediction of the enlightenment the Buddhahood of different Bodhisattvas which is supposed to be like this very uh, amazing uh, pivotal moment in their path obviously you know when you're actually predicted by the Buddha that you you're it's like a home run or a you're, it's the slide to home base. You've got it. And uh, I don't know why baseball crept in there, but uh, um, that you're going to be a Buddha 
and he states your name and what Buddha field, what what universe, and like how how the being, how Dharma's taught there, and the way beings look, and this and that, and it's just like blows your your view of this sort of unitary world. This is it, and one at a time, quadrillion years, just totally blows it up completely. So there's a, you know a zillion Buddhas at the same time all over. So don't lose heart. There's plenty of there's plenty of places that you can apply to be a Buddha in. You can send your resume all over. <laughs> Anything else? Okay. Uh, Lord. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I know it does seem you could, if you, again, speaking li- literally, it seems kind of, it could be, feel like a hopeless quest. Um, the way I look at it is, uh, Buddhism, the Mahayana, it's all about just expanding and opening as much as you can, you know? And so, you know, it's this over-the-top goal that you're given. And um, you don't worry about, well, how am I doing? How many did I enlighten today or anything like that? But it's more about... Um, uh, take getting that intention in view and living your life that way. And if you continually strive for that, maybe one person <laughs> at the end of your life or after an, after the end of a kalpa or something. But but and and that alone, that alone begins to be just a a, a virtuous cycle. You know, you you're you just want to give more because it, it there's so much benefit from it. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Totally, uh, expanding in all ways, in all in all ways, very much so. I think Lori and then Chris, and then we'll dive in. Now, I'm, on a much smaller scale, what I'm noticing is that the more I try to expand and, you know, wish well for others and stuff, the more my own clashes come up. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No, just the more I try to give and stuff, like the angrier I, angrier I get, the more things come up that I, <laughs> I get resentful about. Yeah, it's a dangerous path when you start opening yourself up to other things. <laughs> it's like... You begin to say, well, life was so easy when I was just on the straight and narrow working on it. (laughs) Exactly. Go back on retreat. Chris. Um, So Zamsar Kense recently gave some teachings about this. He he gave the Bodhisattva vow online um, a couple weeks ago. And one of the things he said was that at first it seems incredibly overwhelming that you have to save, like, every being. It's like, it's a ridiculous uh, goal. And that it only appears that way from our dualistic limited mindset in which we separate ourselves and other people and separate other people from other people. But as you get closer to a non-dual state, the difference between one person and a hundred people becomes much more inconsequential. So that's his take. That's neat, thank you. That's really cool, thanks Chris. It reminds me of a talk he gave a long time ago where he talks about 
Um, one of the things that makes it easier for uh, Indians and Tibetans and maybe Easterners in general to understand Buddhism is their ability to hold conflicting views at the same time. <laughs> the illogical act of holding conflicting views that everything matters and nothing matters. You know, bodhicitta, everything is so important and precious and every little thing and at the same time, shunyata, emptiness. How do you reconcile those two? Couldn't they just work at emptiness and appearance? Couldn't they, couldn't they work things out? There's a t-shirt somebody made of that, emptiness and appearance. <laughs> anyway, so let's dive in. We're talking about uh, cultivating the attitude of mind. Is that it? Chapter 8. Cultivating the attitude of mind oriented, oriented towards enlightenment. And uh, Longchamp goes through an awful lot of material in this chapter. So we'll try to touch on it uh, without uh, doing disservice to it. So upon the basis of the four boundless attitudes or states of mind, then meditate upon the twofold bodhicitta, bodhicitta, the root of all the dharmas. And this is what this, this uh, activity of meditating on the twofold bodhicitta is what brings forth freedom from defilement, saves you from samsara. It is the essence of the Mahayana path. And brings you to peace, drives away fear, pain, evil, vanquishes both karma and the source of your suffering. And from the circle of existence will bring beings into peace. And uh, so we'll see endless, almost endless, uh, it does end after a few stanzas, but like um, a lot of repetition of the greatness of bodhicitta and uh, as is common in the Mahayana Sutras, this this uh, recurring analogy of um, <clears throat> one little moment of, of mind oriented towards bodhicitta is better than a zillion kalpas of virtue performed without the mind of bodhicitta. That one little ounce, one little glimpse, one second of having some understanding of bodhicitta, of performing virtue not for the benefit of oneself, not for the benefit of, not for the purpose of accumulating one's own merit and happiness, but for the benefit of all beings, benefit and happiness, transforms that moment into uh, so much more momentum on the path than anything else we can do really so uh, over and over again he'll he'll talk about this um, in stanza three smaller the fruits of other virtues and they wear away but virtue joined with this precious state of mind 
increases and is never exhausted like crystal water flowing down into the sea and like abundant harvest grown in fertile soil it's the root or seed of every excellence its nature its compassion many are its fruits of happiness even in samsara and of supreme enlightenment it is the cause if you want to achieve enlightenment supreme enlightenment as opposed to liberation from samsara which is the liberation, the enlightenment of uh, Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas. If you want to achieve supreme enlightenment of a Buddha, Bodhicitta is the cause. Uh, and then you use all, all these uh, uh, traditional imageries from the legends of uh, the land of India, the sacred land of India, the perfect wish-fulfilling vase, the remedy that cures the ills of all beings, the sun of primal wisdom, the moon that soothes all torment, like the sky, it's immaculate. Its qualities are numberless, like the stars. It is an ever-flowing spring of benefit and joy beyond imagination, or its benefit, benefits, and so on and so on. Okay, so starting with seven, stanza seven, we have the definition. First, we have the greatness of bodhicitta. Now we have the definition of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, the wish to gain sublime enlightenment for countless beings' sake. The, that twofold aspect to its definition. The, the intent upon supreme enlightenment for the sake of everyone. It's of two kinds. Bodhicitta is of two kinds. There's intention and active bodhicitta. Intention is the wish and action, the pursuit of this attainment. It's like the wish to go and actually setting out. And here he's talking basically about relative bodhicitta as the as aspiration and engagement. Intentional and active relative bodhicitta. Bodhicitta and intention has, so to say, the nature of the four unbound, unbounded attitudes, whereas active bodhicitta is the six paramitas, transcendent virtues. So it has, the intention has the nature of the four unbounded, boundless attitudes of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity or equality. And the act, activity is the six parameters, activities that uh, transcend ego, the focus upon oneself. In stanza 10, for it is said that if one has, but for a single instant, the wish and thought to take away the slightest pain and suffering of beings, one will be free from evil destinies and taste unbounded bliss of gods and humankind. Even greater are the benefits of active bodhicitta, that prior description being intention bodhicitta. Indeed, they are unlimited. For this means actual engagement. One instant of the practice of the supreme mind is said to equal the accumulations both of merit and of wisdom that are gathered otherwise over many, many kalpas without the idea, the intention or engagement of bodhicitta. He points out that the uh, 
this, the uh, pace at which the accumulations are gathered varies depending upon one's intention. Regarding the imperfection of the two accumulations, whether it be completed in three immeasurable kalpas and so forth, or whether it is swift or slow to come, or whether freedom may be gained within a single life, three kalpas within one life, all this depends upon one's strength of mind. And when conjoined with supreme methods, such as diligence and supreme wisdom, the mind is at its strongest and is unsurpassed. Bodhicitta has the essence of compassion. In uh, 14, the, how Bodhicitta arises from a virtuous friend. We went through the uh, encountering a uh, spiritual friend, inspires Bodhicitta. Um, such a teacher inspires us by teaching on the evils of samsara and on the benefits of freedom from samsara. Such a teaching is virtuous in the beginning, the middle, and the end. A famous way of describing the teachings of the Buddha that he himself used to describe his teachings. Virtuous in the beginning, the middle, and the end. And by the praising of bodhicitta, so you'll see uh, Tibetan teachers in particular go on endlessly teaching about bodhicitta. How do we give rise to the mind of uh, bodhicitta? How do we take the vow? He gives a, um, a little portrayal of how to actually take the vow of bodhicitta. And uh, those of you that have taken the bodhisattva vow, you'll see these elements incorporated into that. So if you that have yet to take it, you will see that when in time comes. Hopefully you will undertake this vow. Hopefully you'll be crazy enough and deluded enough and totally not in control of your faculties enough that you'll undertake the Bodhisattva vow. <laughs> On the other hand, you should really consider it beforehand with a sound mind and weigh, you know, the sanity of doing such a thing. It's completely insane. So I highly recommend that you not do it. Obviously, I'm joking. Uh, in a clean and pleasant place, adorned with offerings, prepared by setting up an image of the Buddha together with other necessary articles from the New York Times. Then imagine in the space in front of you, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, like great banks of cloud that fill the sky. Most people think of banks as having money in them, but... Buddhists, they always have clouds in the bank, in their banks. Anyway, um, it, it is said that through the stainless strength of one's own mind and the compassion of the sovereigns of love and wisdom, all will be according to one's wish. In other words, you can visualize all of this. Uh, invite them with a the flower in your joint hands, requesting them to take their seat. So the idea when you take the Bodhisattva vow is you're not alone. When you take this aspiration, you do it within the company of all those from beginningless time who have also taken the Bodhisattva vow and given rise to this idea and conviction in their beings of being a Bodhisattva and having this mind of Bodhicitta as their most precious possession from now until 
but uh, forever, not until you die, but forever. You can never renounce the bodhicitta on the, upon the pain of death, he says also somewhere, right? Request them all to take their seat. So you invite them all to be your witnesses and to, and to do this with you so that it's not something you can uh, get out of. <laughs> uh, make offerings of baths, adornments, raiment, and the rest, the traditional offerings. Then like a lotus bud appearing in a lovely pool and opening with the rising of the sun, make a gesture with your two hands joined above your head. Beautiful imagery of uh, Anjali above your head as being a lotus bud appearing in a lovely pool and opening with the rising of the sun. That's neat. When melodious praises with countless emanated forms bow down to them devotedly, devoted, devotedly. As many as may be the drops of water in the sear atoms in the earth, the king of mountains, merits such as this cannot be found in all the triple worlds thanks to such prostration for as many times as their atoms in the earth down to the strong foundation of the universe you will become a chakravartin king and finally you will attain the state of supreme peace you will become whatever is helpful to beings including being a chakravartin king so first uh, we have prostration and what uh, Longchenpa is going to do is he's going to describe what are known as the uh, sevenfold Mahayana offering or uh, sevenfold Mahayana, um, seven-limbed practice of the Mahayana. Famous practice that appears in uh, most Mahayana practices. It's incorporated into it. And so if you do a Vajrayana practice of any uh, uh, more than just like a very quick little practice, it will incorporate the sevenfold offering of the Mahayana. Prostrating is the first one. Offering presented in reality. Imagine your mind make offerings in vast, unsurpassed array. Flowers, incense, lamps, food, drink, canopies, pennants, floating near, parasols and melody, victory banners, yaktail fans, gotta have the yaktail fans, drums and all the rest. And with your body, pleasures and possessions make offerings to the Buddhas, the rare and supreme, both rare and supreme, teachers of all beings together with the Bodhisattva children. And he goes on uh, with all sorts of different offerings that are traditional, really in the, India, uh, in the Indian milieu, different types of uh, precious things that are offered in the traditional versions of Indian literature. Uh, stanza after stanza of offerings. You offer the, in the 23, you offer the hair marked moon because the moon has a rabbit in it, uh, H-A-R-E. It's not, it's not that the hair, that the moon has hair on it, <laughs> a hairy moon, but it's a rabbit in the moon instead of a man in the moon. All white in autumn lights encircled by garland of fixed stars etc. Make offerings to them. All the riches of delightful things and so forth. Perfect vase, the wishing tree, the abundant cow, all these traditional Indian legendary things. The abundant cow, the seven attributes of sovereignty of us, of a supreme sovereign, the eight auspicious substances, 
and the seven subsidiary precious objects with all these in prodigious quantity make offerings to the holy and compassionate field of worship so the field of worship is the visualized array of buddhas and bodhisattvas from all times and all directions who have uh, eagerly taken up your invitation and have uh, placed themselves in the sky around you in the cloud banks of the sky around you with concentrated mind make it more offerings outer inner secret outer offerings of material objects inner offerings are your are your uh, your hopes and fears your eight worldly concerns and then the secret offering is your clashes you have to offer up your neurosis and in vast and endless clouds that fill the whole of space with beauteous clouds of blossom, exquisite, bright pavilions, massing clouds of incense, healing nectar, and so forth, make offerings to all of them. Okay, it's a little bit exhausting, all these offerings. Uh, on uh, 28, so having done all these offerings, we move on to the next part of the sevenfold. We did number two prostrating offering one and two third one is confession evil deeds and defilements all the wrongs that you have ever done through habits gained from time without beginning confess them all and cleanse them in that way by having confessed them interesting that confession is part of also in the buddhist tradition incorporated it here in the in the buddhist tradition not only in the mahayana but also in uh, earlier traditions of buddhism once every fortnight, the, the nuns and monks would gather and confess whatever wrongdoings they had. And in that way, they would seek to uh, purify them by confessing them publicly. Um, all the wrongs you've done through habits gained from time without beginning. Confess them all and cleanse them for their causes of your wandering in existence. And then the, the fourth aspect is to rejoice rejoice in the merit of the Dharma. Let the boundless mass of merit that wandering beings gather by your constant object of rejoicing. Be, sorry, your constant object of rejoicing. So rejoicing in the merit of all beings. To liberate all beings, leaving none aside, request the Buddhas and their heirs to turn the wheel of Dharma unsurpassed. So then the uh, fifth one, the fifth aspect of the seven, is requesting the teachings from the teachers, the Buddhas and their heirs to turn the wheel of Dharma, and then uh, requesting them to remain till the ocean of samsara has been emptied. Pray that they will stay forever and not pass beyond all sorrow. Praying that the teachers remain and they don't die, they don't pass away early. And uh, this is where we get in the Tibetan tradition, this idea that the teachers only manifest as long as their students that need them. And teachers that are not needed pass away early and young. And um, one of the ways of trying to get teachers to live longer is to express your desire for their teachings in a very formulaic, formalistic way. Um, through the merit of this prayer, request that you and every being come all without exception to the state of Buddhahood. So that's the dedication. That's the seventh part of the seven limb offering. Dedication of all, whatever merit was accumulated by this may have lead to the enlightenment of all beings. <clears throat> 
So having done that, just as when a sheet of cloth is cleansed and later dyed, its colors will be bright and clear likewise. When the mind is cleansed through such a preparation, the supreme attitude, which is bodhicitta, is clearly born. The wholesome strength accruing from this prayer in seven branches is unlimited, which is like the Dharmadhatu, and it permeates the vast abyss of space. Take refuge three times in the triple gem of Buddha Dharma and Supreme Assembly, and then we proclaim. And here he's quoting from a famous book. Anybody know what book he's quoting from? Anybody here take Bodhisattva vow? Anybody here take the Bodhisattva vow? This is like what you repeat in the vow. Does this sound familiar? You might have forgotten it. Shanti Deva. Shanti Om Shanti Shanti Deva's uh, book called what? Uh, the Way of the Bodhisattva. The Way of the Bodhisattva. Bodhicharya Vitara. Bodhisattva Charya Vitara. I don't know how you say it. Yeah, entering into the Way of the Bodhisattva. Entering into the Charya activity of the Bodhisattva. Oh, protectors, you and all your offspring, think of me. Just as the Buddhas of the past, together with their heirs, have brought forth the awakened mind, and then the precepts of the Bodhisattvas lived and trained. Likewise, for the benefit of beings, I will bring to birth the awakened mind, and in those precepts I will live and train myself. I will carry over those who have not fully crossed, and liberate those who are not free. I will bring relief to those who are not yet relieved. All beings will I place in Buddhahood. Say this three times during the day and three times during the night, strive thus to cultivate these twofold bodhicitta. Engender with the first enunciation bodhicitta and intention. Then with the second, active bodhicitta engagement. Then with the third one, make the two both pure and firm. Make them pure, both of them pure and firm. And again, from this day forward, I will be the ground of sustenance for every being beings will walk all over me. I assume the name of Bodhisattva, heir and offspring of the conqueror, the Buddha. And in samsara, fearlessly, I will secure the good of wandering beings, which are the migrators of samsaric. All samsaric beings are called wandering beings because they wander through the realms, the six realms of uh, samsara. Constantly with diligence, I will bring them only benefit <clears throat> and thus make meaningful this human life of mine. Today I make this life meaningful. Our translation is slightly different. In the earth of such pure and virtuous mind, the shoots of twofold bodhicitta are perfectly engendered. Strive by every means to hold them, keep them pure, and make them grow. Then finally, all the sufferings of beings I will take upon myself, my happiness I give to them to bring them joy until they gain enlightenment. May they never lose such bliss. Which such thoughts train yourself and turn by turn, give them all your happiness and their sorrows take upon yourself. Du Tong Len, practice of sending and receiving. These are the precepts of bodhicitta and intention. Likewise, train in the four boundless attitudes that support this intention. Eradicate whatever acts against them. Place a guard upon your mind. The precepts then of active bodhicitta are the practices of the six transcendent virtues. Strive therein, removing all opposing forces at all times, mindfully and with watchful introspection. Those two key aspects of shamatha and with attentive care, the third 
major aspect of shamatha. Remove your negativities and gather stores of merit, ocean vast. Mindfulness, introspection, and attentiveness, conscientiousness. Those three are the main characteristics of flawless shamatha. Excuse me one second. And then he goes through with attentive care, remove your negativities on the one hand and then gather stores of merit, ocean vast. So he's going to go through some of the negativities. Train in the bodhicittas without spoil, the two bodhicittas without spoiling them, beginning with wrong view. There are the deeds that constitute the downfalls of a king, beginning with the laying waste of towns. Probably not something most of us here are going to fall prey to anytime soon, but you never know. Uh, there are the five deeds that are downfalls of a minister. And these are all in the notes. Eight downfalls are then linked with commoners like us. Then there are the two that all may perpetuate. Perpetrate, sorry. Altogether, therefore, there are 20 downfalls of bodhicitta. These evils and abundant faults should all be known. To keep oneself from all these things, to be without these downfalls and these faults, to train oneself in all concordant virtue, all of this, it should be understood are the precepts of the Bodhisattva. So on, initially, the, the precepts are to uh, not engage in the downfalls and any of those downfalls. He'll go into some more detail of the, these downfalls. Four black actions are in brief to be rejected. Four white should be carefully adopted to deceive those worthy of respect, to cause regret for what is not regretted, to speak to holy beings with surly and unpleasant words. Never do that. To play others false with cunning and duplicity. These are the four black actions that should be rejected. Gulp. To follow holy beings and extol their qualities, inciting others to authentic virtue. I like that one. It's an interesting one. is like to inspire others to virtue. Um, to take the bodhisattvas as true Buddhas and with a noble and superior attitude to bring about the happiness and benefit of beings. These are the four white actions that should always be adopted. Regarding then these precepts of those bodhisattvas for whom the good of others is of greater import than their own. Seven non-virtues of both deed and word are it performed for others good aloud. Did anybody notice this little phrase? That's a sort of dangerous idea. What do you guys make of that? You can do naughty stuff if it's for others' benefit. That's a slippery slope, huh? Any comment on that? 
Well, isn't that like the classic thing that if somebody's about to hit the nuclear button, you would, the bodhisattva would not hesitate to harm that person if it was able to save the rest of the world? Or things like that? Yeah, I think that I think exactly. So I think the Buddha uses that precise analogy. <laughs> if somebody's about to push the button, has the codes, the whole. I, I think his was something about a boat, wasn't it? A ship. Ah, uh, right, a ship. Yeah. <laughs> Contemporary technology of the time. Yeah. So does so does that mean the end justifies the means? Yes, in a sense. Yes. It's a it sense that there's sort of relativity to the um, evaluation, I guess, of a situation. It's yeah, situational, situational ethics, right? Yeah, there are no absolutes. That's right. Interesting. But then you get into that. What is it? The trolley car uh, scenario, or whatever it is. You know, the, where people have to make the decision. You know, the ability to. The, the question is, who has the ability and vision to be able to see all the consequences thoroughly enough to make such a uh, challenging call? Chris, what's the, what's the image of the trolley car? What's the... I, think, I think that's the classic one. I'm afraid I'm slightly forgetting it, but there, I think it has something to do with... Uh, it's sort of like, just imagine any driver, but in this case, I think the classic one was about a trolley car, where if they... If you go one way, or you know, just imagine even if it's a driver, you know, you swerve to avoid one thing and you hit another. Um, and the, so the question is, you know, is it a question of the numbers, um, that type of thing? I mean, you could say it's the same thing they're struggling with with the artificial intelligence in self-driving vehicles nowadays. Yeah. Same problem. Last. That's a tricky one. Very yeah. much so. Okay, well, it, it keeps you on your toes, right? It's not just sort of blindly following some road list of this or that, but really trying try to figure out what's helpful and what's not. I think, I think somewhat that that's actually a really big point, is to have that discerning intelligence of trying to understand how to benefit beings and how not to be harmful. Um, for they are, are virtuous, in fact, in contrast, the three sins of mind can never be permitted. Let's see. Okay, the different types of bodhicitta, uh, bodhisattvas, those who take the vows, there's three different types. You can try to figure out your type, but you can also switch between types. And you can do that informally. You don't need to register. Uh, those who seek to free themselves after and after having done so, other beings are bodhisattvas in the manner of a king. The king goes first and then brings others along. And uh, those who wish to free themselves and others in a single stroke at the same time. Let's go together, guys. Across the ocean of samsara to nirvana are, are bodhisattvas in the manner of a fairy person. Not a fairy person, but a fairy person. Well, those who seek their own peace only after others have been freed are bodhisattvas in the manner of a shepherd. So let other people go first to enlightenment and I'll, I'll come after behind them. There's a different amount of time that it takes for these different people. 
The first attained their freedom after 33 immeasurable kalpas exactly, the second after seven, and the third when three immeasurable kalpas have run their course, which is, by the way, the traditional scheme. They always talk about three immeasurable kalpas. So they're assuming that really a genuine bodhisattva would be a shepherd and come behind all other sentient beings. That distinction, so those sutras have declared, reflects the different power of these types of intentions, these ways of manifesting as a bodhisattva. The children of the Buddha train themselves in every field and chiefly in the six transcendent virtues. When bodhisattvas see the wretched poverty of beings, they give them countless things. So here we launch into the six uh, virtues, but but it, he also says, and he doesn't talk about it, but he says they train themselves in every field. And uh, in other places, this is talked more about of like medicine and, you know, it's like health, things that are helpful to human beings, like being, uh, you know, like uh, having a vaccine for a virus, uh, building bridges. There have, been, there have been teachers in Tibet, there's this one teacher named Tang Tuong Gyalpo the king of iron bridges. All he did was he would go around Tibet and make iron bridges. You know, most of the bridges in Tibet before that were wooden bridges. And, you know, you can imagine how long that lasted over these hairy crevices and ravines. He created these iron bridges, some of which exist to the day. It's pretty amazing. So all sorts of different ways of manifesting as a bodhisattva by training yourselves in, in a field that's helpful to beings. Like I, I was a, a, an accountant and that's bodhisattva activity. I know you're laughing. You should be laughing because I'm joking. But anyway, uh, here we have uh, generosity. When bodhisattvas see the wretched poverty of beings, they give them countless things, food and clothing, horses, gifts and carts. Greater giving is the gift of their own sons and daughters. What do you make of that? That's like freaking ridiculous. Aren't there sons and daughters people too? Shouldn't they want them to achieve enlightenment? How do you rationalize this stuff, you Buddhists, the Bodhisattvas? Is this, uh, is this figurative? Is it said just to like, push the boundaries, you know, and then there's all these different stories of the Buddha's birth as a, as a bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be, many, many lifetimes in the Jataka tales where he gives away his wife, his children. It's like bizarre. I always thought it was practicing non-attachment. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully he was giving them away to a better existence. I mean, if you're like a really mean husband or father, it's probably a benefit to give them away, right? It's, you know, some odd things here and there. Uh, let's see. And the greatest generosity is the gift of their own body. Donating head or eyes or other body parts. Now, they say that you shouldn't do that until you're at least a first-level bodhisattva path of seeing, by the way, in case you were thinking of doing it. On the other hand, donating your body after you die is a very good thing to do. And, you know, Buddhists are, like, very uptight about not touching the body after death. 
but if you donate your body parts, it's okay to disturb the body because of the bodhisattva activity. That's what they say. That's what I heard. Anyway, um, they bring help to beings with material assistance and with the gift of Dharma, destroying their attachments. They produce the wealth of others. Um, so in each of these, there's traditionally three levels of uh, activity, of uh, paramita activity. And uh, in generosity, he talked about giving away material items. And he talked about the gift of Dharma. Anyone know there's traditionally one other type of gift that he didn't really talk about? Is the one about Dharma the same as the fearlessness one? Oh, it's separate. The okay. second one is generally, is traditionally fearlessness or psychological right. comfort. The gift of psychological safety, providing psychological support, safety. This is usually the second type of uh, generosity, paramita. And then the third is, is uh, dharma. Then we go into discipline, the second paramita harnesses the mind stream, bringing peace and virtue to the mind through wisdom. Though, uh, sorry, through wisdom is the twofold goal, perfected, avoiding evil, doing good, and working for the benefit of beings. These three disciplines are kept by bodhisattvas at all times. So right there, three, three levels, avoiding evil, doing good, and working for the benefit of others. Householders maintain the vow of Upasaka. So then he goes into also the traditional uh, uh, forms of uh, entering into the code of discipline or the uh, uh, different uh, levels of undertaking uh, precepts within the Buddhist tradition. Householders maintain the vows of Upasaka and Upavasa. And so those are uh, lay people vows where generally we take the, the five first five precepts, and then at certain times we take the other five of the ten major precepts. I think we mentioned those in the karma chapter, right? And, uh, and train in bodhicitta and intention and in action. For those who have gone forced to homelessness, which is the traditional way of describing those who enter the monastic community going forth, to homelessness. There are the vows of Bhikshu and of Shramanera. Shramanera is the uh, junior level of a monk or a nun. Bhikshu is the uh, full level and the vows of female novices. Because of the uh, male chauvinism at the time, in addition to Shramanera's of nuns, there was a, also a lower class. Furthermore, the trainings of the twofold bodhicitta as well for those who have gone forth to homelessness. Thus is discipline maintained. Patience. He goes on at quite some length about patience, which is interesting. The others, many of them were like one stanza. The patience gets a lot of attention. You've got to have a lot of patience to go through this description. So they must practice three types of patience, making light of various harms and pains from outside or within. Endurance through compassion and reflection on the teachings, and patience that is objectless, that is concerning emptiness. This is a really cool one. 
So these three levels of patients, patients that uh, um, endures harm and pains from outside or within, the uh, enduring harm or pain, and then uh, endurance, endurance through compassion and reflection on the teachings. So uh, enduring the hardship of, of compassionate activity for others. So first is enduring the harm of uh, what others or situations inflict on oneself. Secondly, enduring the difficulties of practicing compassion towards others. And then patience without object. So patience that endures or um, uh, sort of gives in to the nature of reality of being uncreated, unborn, of being empty. Uh, sometimes they call this the patient endurance of the uncreated. And this is the highest level of patience. Patience that just relaxes into the unoriginated quality of reality. In other words, giving up expectation. Patience is all about relaxing expectation and hope. Overcoming aggression. Aggression is pushing uh, trying to change, trying to um, trying to get. And patience is all about allowing and accepting. Um, there's no greater negativity than angry hate. With patience, no austerity or merit can compare. Therefore, strive persistently and by every means to practice patience and to quench the blazing conflagration of your angry hate. Countless other hostile causes of your injuries, you cannot shift them all, save one or two. And yet by taming of your mind alone, all those harms are likewise tamed. Uh, earnestly maintain, therefore, your mind-subduing discipline. There's a famous... Uh, image from Shantideva about that. Anyone? Instead of uh, trying to make all the world flat and soft and bearable and comfortable, we wear shoes. Soft, comfortable shoes, hopefully, so that we can walk all over different types of ground and surfaces without harming our feet. And so in the same way, there's no way that we're going to make the world perfect. But if we can train our mind, then uh, no, no imperfection will bother us. It's not the same as being apathetic you know, and uh, allowing harm to occur, by the way. Um, let's see. It's thanks to all your injuries that patience you will perfectly achieve from all such hurts. Compassion, love, and other qualities are also born. Your enemies are thus your friends who, like your teachers, help you to, uh, help you to enlightenment. Patiently rely on them with joy and respect. This is one of the more bizarre things of patiently relying on people who do you harm with joy and respect. And uh, you, you read about these crazy stories of Tibetans in captivity 
in uh, China during the Cultural Revolution when uh, certain members of the Chinese uh, population, not all Chinese by far, but certain uh, radical elements went about their way to uh, torture and harm Tibetans and the teachers. They, they, uh, you know, how do we harm the people as we, we, uh, we torture and uh, humiliate their religious figures? So they went after the teachers in particular. And you can read some of these stories. They're just amazing of these teachers living in in prisons for like 20 years, being tortured and just uh, maintaining equanimity and love towards their, their uh, those who that have been imprisoned and are tortured. It's just mind boggling. Uh, one book in particular is uh, Freedom and, and uh, Bondage. What's it called, Freedom? Bondage, no. It was the one by Adi Rinpoche, right? Rinpoche, yeah. I have that, yeah. I think it's, um, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the title. Yeah, just amazing. It also has some of the most amazing Dzogchen teachings in the second half. So, if you're interested. Your injuries do not arise without your being present. The two, like cry and echo, are connected. What is he saying there? Anyone? What does he mean? To your your injuries don't arise without you being present. Is he saying that you have to be present when you're being tortured? You have to maintain presence of mind, Mary Beth? If you, if you don't have a self, then there's no self to be harmed. Yeah, if you didn't have a body, if you weren't around, then you wouldn't be harmed. So the fact that you have karma that brings you into situations means that, you know, there's karma that from the past that's ripening. In the, in the form of you being uh, in such a situation where you become the object of uh, violence from others. It's a very interesting way of looking at things. You once did harm, now harm has come to you. So we they view uh, the receipt of harm as being the uh, maturation of negative karma from the past the fruit of your past action, actions and attendant circumstance, that it should befall you is entirely fitting. It is the means whereby past action is exhausted. So just forbear and tame your mind by every means. This is uh, sort of the culmination of this radical behavior of viewing the uh, receipt of uh, violence and harm as being the uh, exhaustion of prior negative karma and therefore being a good thing. A little bit easier with sickness, like when you get sick, of like, oh, and you sort of exhaust that negative karma, but uh, it's a little harder to think of uh, other types of torture and violence that way. But that is the idea that they traditionally express. When, um, to, say again? Can I ask something really quick? Yeah. Doesn't that idea, in a way, it could be a little bit dangerous? Because then as a bodhisattva, if I'm seeing somebody being harmed, I could say to myself, oh, well, they're just burning up their karma or whatever. And so it could kind of turn into that kind of confusion. Totally. That's why I'm dwelling on it. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, 
it's this odd line, this razor's edge between like, in, you know, when is it positive and when is it negative? So, I, you know, your example of, well, it's okay they're beating up that kid there. You know, it's good for the kid. It's just using up that kid's past negative karma. It's crazy. It's totally not the way to look at it. But if you're the kid, then that is the way to look at it. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Uh, when unwanted things befall you, rid yourself of all displeasure. For if there is a remedy, what need is there for it? For your displeasure. This is the Tibetans say this all the time. Uh, it, you know, instead of worrying, why worry? If there's, if you have a problem and there's something you can do about it, then you don't need to worry. And if there's a problem and there's nothing you can do about it, then there's no need to worry. <laughs> People are crazy, freaking crazy. But that's also in the uh, way of the Bodhisattva. That's Shanti Deva. A lot of this is. Yeah, this all comes from Shanti Deva. Shanti Deva, yeah. He, he, I remember this. This, uh, yeah. I mean, I actually this one. I think is actually verbatim. Helpful. Yeah, probably. It's verbatim, but I think it's also it's it's helpful. I mean, you do a lot of things. You know, it's the kind of thing if you can't, if you can't fix it, get used. Destroying yourself over it is kind of waste of time. You know, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But interesting point of uh, this coming from Shanti Deva about Tibetan literature is that plagiarism is is like a virtue, and they will just lift major passages from other texts without a blink of an eye. It's just like being a way of paying homage to those other texts and those other authors, often without uh, accreditation. What, what need us, uh, so if, if no change is possible, what point is there in useless irritation? Therefore, simply bear with all that you may befall you. When examined, there's only space like emptiness. There's no happiness or sadness, loss or gain. There's neither good nor bad, neighborly uh, dharmas. What use is there in such dualistic grasping? Strive to bring all things into the state of evenness, equality, diligence, exertion, paramita, the fifth, fourth paramita. For one who, who takes delight in virtuous deeds, a joy that is of diligence, the very essence, endless virtues gather like clouds. Like bees that throng a bed of fragrant lotuses, three kinds of laziness are contraries of diligence, an inclination to wholesome, unwholesome ways, discouragement, and self-contempt. How do you like that? Self-contempt is a laziness. Self-loathing. Brent. I had a question for the note 76 on uh, 51. Can you read this? Yeah, it's on page 279. And it says, since they are composed of infinitesimal particles, the body of the one who harms and the body of the one who is harmed do not truly exist in terms of the actual harmer and something that is actually harmed. It seems like that's kind of the teaching that's, responsible for all the Buddhist atrocity 
from like the war priests in Japan and World War II to whatever's going on in Burma now, that there's no actor and there's no action being performed? I've never, I've never heard that used as the excuse. Have you really heard that used as the excuse for the Rohingya? Not in this specific instance, but that was basically, I mean, I don't know what the people in Burma are saying, but that was the rationale for the war priests in Japan. The Harikiri? No, what? just the encouraging people to go to war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of this is a slippery slope, and that one is uh, as much as some of the others we've talked about, of like, well, they're illusory beings, so it's okay to kill them. Total perversion of the Dharma. Total perversion. And in uh, Rohingya, what I've heard is that the Buddhists are saying, well, they brought it upon themselves because they attacked. They attacked first. You know, and that is just so bizarre what's going on in, in uh, Burma with the Rohingya people, where you have the the monastics like leading, the, the inciting the military. It's just unthinkable. It's just so bizarre. Anyone else have comment? Yeah, so, you know, this harkens back to um, what we talked about earlier of... Uh, um, those who believe in things being real are, are silly or foolish, but those who believe in emptiness are dumb like cows. You know, and here it's like, uh, well, those beings are empty, so we can just kill them. It doesn't matter. Kevin? Uh, yeah, it seems to be a, a convenient uh, religious, so to speak, a Buddhist excuse for nationalism. Yeah. And, and we know where nationalism goes. Uh, Alexandria. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, something? Yeah, please. Uh, I've seen a, a film a couple of years ago about this uh, dictate, Buddhist dictatorship in uh, Burma, and the leader, I forgot his name, but he's kind of, he's kind of a Hitler brainwashing all the monks, and that's how the mind can easily actually be convinced by authority sometimes, but as you said, it's very surprising because what? Because they're Buddhists, but Christians did the same. They were killing during the Crusades because of the love of God. So we're all, we can all be trapped this way. Yeah, this is an important point. You know, we gotta, we gotta have intelligent Buddhism, not, Mm -hmm. not this sort of mythical, Buddhism that's used for uh, agendas of whatever you know. This uh, leader, the monk leader that I forgot the name, is full of hate for the Muslims and is uh, transposing, I mean, is sharing this hate so strongly that they all become hateful with the Muslims. So it's just like a sharing is negative emotions. Yeah, yeah, I saw clips from that, I think, myself. Uh, Noir and then uh, Kevin again. Oh, I was just going to say that it sounds to me a bit like nihilism and going towards the other extreme, where if you think everything's ephemeral, you've kind of lost track of interdependence. This is, all this is also related to interdependence. And truly understanding the interdependent of nature makes you have a big view. And when you have a big view, sort of like your small sort of like short-term actions are really impactful 
So if you lose that and you lose the concept of karma, then yeah, I mean, anyone can do any sort of thing because they're not really thinking of the big picture there. So there's a few, you know, remember everyone's human. It doesn't matter if they're Buddhist. Buddhist is just a term too. That's a, that's as ephemeral as the wind. Right. So it's like people are people and uh, you know, everyone's on their own sort of like path and journey. No one is perfect and there is no such thing as perfection in itself, you know? Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Thank you, Kevin. And then, and and it confirms the belief that, you know, religion is always used for political ends. Yeah, like like almost everything else in this world, it gets absconded for political ends, left and right. Anyone else? Chris, I thought I saw your hand coming up. I think we shouldn't be so naive to think that Buddhism is by any means immune to this. And all of these teachings on matters of ethics um, are relative teachings. And by virtue of being relative, teachings are subject to all kinds of corruptions. Um, So I think it's always important to remain uh, as critical as we can be um, of how these teachings and ideas are being used and the extent to which they can be corrupted. Bingo. That's the key, is to, to constantly be uh, critical of these things. You know, if we look back at uh, what Mary Beth reminded us about last week, I think it was the four reliances. You know, looking at the, the meaning, not the words. Looking at the intention. What's the, the definitive meaning, not the provisional meaning of things? Really being critically critical of teachings, analyzing them, not just accepting things on face value because so-and-so said it because it's in the book or the Buddha said it or whatever. Uh, last one, uh, Kevin, then we should try to yeah, go. Even, even when it says, do not criticize your teacher, uh, you know, yeah. revere to them and don't be critical. It says it very black and white, and yet that I don't believe is is the uh, real instruction. Yeah, we went through that uh, last week, I think, last class, big time. That whole section on how to relate to the spiritual teacher. Derek. Virtual, yes. I'm sure you have that uh, saying in English, in French. It's uh, la robe ne fait pas le moine. So the robe doesn't make a monk. That's great. Thanks. You have the same, I guess, in English. Do you? I think so. Yeah, uh, the habit. The habit doesn't make the monk. Um, yeah, it's basically that. I mean, it's the it's the heart. It's not the outfit. Right. Right. It sounds better in French, though. It does. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for Brent. Thank you, Brent, for asking that. When examined, there's only space-like emptiness. So, what does it all matter? It's not the way to interpret and understand that. Um, Diligence, three kinds of laziness, uh, inclination to unwholesome ways, discouragement, and self-contempt are laziness. Interesting way of looking at, at those attitudes. These prevent accomplishment of virtue and are source of every fault. All excellence declines, decays, sets in. The diligent, on the other hand, are praised by all the world. They achieve their every wish, increase their store of excellence, and will pass beyond all sorrow. 
So uh, striving to abandon all virtue in the next stanza. Uh, to accomplish only good, increasingly exert yourself and go from strength to strength. Work tirelessly until enlightenment is gained. So, uh, paramita of diligence. And finally, uh, sorry, not finally, but fifth, the uh, perfection of meditation, here translated as concentration in Sanskrit samadhi. Those who wish for it, and here he goes on at some length, must leave aside distraction and entertainments. The pleasure that you take in things is like autumn clouds, by nature transient, unstable like a lightning flash. Possessions don't stay, they're like castles in a cloud. Never trust them, abandon them, and quickly go to peaceful forest groves. Escape to the woods, to your retreat in the woods. Desires are the parents of all ruin, the search for wealth, Gathering and preserving are themselves a source of suffering, arrogance, avidity, greed, and selfishness only increase. Cravings lead you to the lower realms and but are and bar the way to happy states. So lessen your desires and cultivate contentment. So he's uh, once again he's basically copying Shantideva's Bodhicharavatara and giving the presentation of uh, meditation in this traditional format. It's initially starting with overcoming the uh, five hindrances, desire and, and uh, aggression and so forth, greed and so forth. In proportion to the number of its wounds, the body is traversed by suffering. In proportion to the quantity of wealth, so much suffering there is, and even more unbounded happiness keeps company with few possessions. Victim of but small aggression, you have no fear of enemies and thieves. Praised by all, you dwell upon the noble path. Path. Little do you have to do, small labor is there for your mind. Train constantly, therefore, to have but few desires and few possessions. Some oddities. Consorting with the childish is the source of boundless defects. Evil actions grow and sin will naturally defile you. Virtue withers, strife and afflictions grow. They are ungrateful and difficult to please, even though you're supposed to help them and bring them to enlightenment. Just don't do that by spending time with them. Worn away by busy entertainments, much of their behavior is devoid of sense, like fire, like snakes, like packs of predators. Such are childish folk. Run far away from them. Until you gain stability of mind, you're completely led astray by outer things. Joyfully remain, therefore, in forest solitudes until amid the sounds of tearful sorrow, four men bear, you, oh, bear away your corpse. That was like the image of perfection was to die unknown, unrecognized in the forest in retreat. That's this image of the kusalu, the yogi. Seek to live in peaceful solitude and vanquish the distractions of your mind and body. And then he goes on at length about the virtues of forests from a very sort of naturalistic point of view. Skipping to 62, in such pleasant solitude, sweetened with the scent of wholesome plants and frankincense, growth and concentration comes quite naturally. Uh, so then he goes into some of the other aspects of the traditional paths of meditation. In 63, seeing the bones that lie about in charnel grounds, 
So make sure while you're in the forest to visit the nearby charnel ground and remind yourself of the impermanence and death of all beings. Uh, traditional meditation practice was studying the stages of decomposition of corpses. They had nine stages of decomposition of the skeleton, famous meditation practice. In that way, you'll know that your own body is the same in nature. It will fall apart, disintegrate, with the understanding that there's no essence in compounded things. All pleasure and samsara will desert you. Released from strife and defilement, your mind will always be in peace and bliss and apt to wholesome ways. Uh, even so, it, the uh, just like bodhicitta, that's like one moment of bodhicitta is so much greater than everything else in the world for millions of aeons. Just taking seven steps towards your uh, solitude with a mind revolted with samsara has has such merit that its tiniest part exceeds comparison with all the offerings made to all the Buddhas, as many as the grands of sand in the Ganges. That's this other traditional analogy, always talking about the river Ganges, huge major river in India where all the ascetics used to practice or still do. And apparently it has a lot of sand. Uh, so therefore live in peaceful forest groves and how to do that with legs, with cross legs, take your seat, remain with concentrated mind, not stirring from the state of meditative equipoise, poise, accomplish various concentrations, three levels of concentration traditionally. Um, first is the one that gives delight to childish beings, second, uh, then the concentration clearly discerning, and finally the sublime concentration of the Tathagatas. So he explains them, the first one of childish beings are those that are attached to the bliss of the absorption states, like children, the four samadhis and the four formless concentrations. That's quite a put down of uh, those, those practices um, that are pursued by those who have not entered the, the, the Buddhist path, when they're pursued by those who have not entered the Buddhist path. The second is the concentration of the ones who have entered the path. And uh, so he said that that concentration is uh, clearly discerning. So that's a factor of meditation that's missing in the absorption states, clear discernment. And so the shamatha that we practice is essential to have both a concentrating factor of mindfulness and the clear discerning quality of introspection. Third denotes the concentration of noble ones from the path of seeing upward. And these take these concentrations take away the states of mind that are grossed in objects of desire and result in perfect knowledge, preternatural cognition, all these sort of uh, unusual side effects, side benefits, and all the samadhis of uh, the power of vision. They give mastery to work wonders and perfect mastery of mind. There's this traditional list of uh, six supernatural powers that come with the perfection of concentration. If you're interested in such things, they probably have it in the notes. And finally, the perfection of wisdom of three types, hearing, Reflection and meditation, the wisdom brings deep insight that destroys the filaments, is the understanding of phenomena and the nature of phenomena, which means you travel from the city of samsara to nirvana's peace. So, uh, transcendent 
knowledge, prajna, is said to have these two aspects. It understands the uh, nature of phenomena as being empty and their extent or their manifestation, which he uh, expresses in a little bit of an oblique way here. The understanding of phenomena and the nature of phenomena. The result of that understanding is the experience of appearances, primordially unborn, like reflections, without intrinsic being, but appearing still in various forms. And when you understand their natural purity, the fact that they arise dependently, interdependently, as Noir said earlier, you swiftly reach the supreme state, nirvana, that abides in no extreme. So so important to understand the interdependent nature of phenomena on the relative level, their extent or way of manifesting, as well as their emptiness on the absolute or ultimate level. By possessing wisdom when it's freed with skillful means, just as poison is extracted with spells, without wisdom, skillful means enslaves us. Without prajna, all the other paramitas enslave us as though the remedy itself changed into something that provokes disease of source of pain. Therefore, cultivate the wisdom whereby the nature of phenomena is realized. By implementing these six transcendent virtues, you should understand that you yourself are like a magical apparition. Do not reify the three spheres, virtues, object, subject, object, and action. So, uh, in order to make these virtues uh, have uh, be skillful and uh, be of skillful means and not be poisons that uh, bind us. We need to understand the three the three purities, the three pure spheres of the actor, the action, and the acted upon. That all are empty in nature and interdependent in manifesting. With a twofold gathering of merit and wisdom, you will swiftly gain the peace of Buddhahood. May the rain borne by the clouds of goodly virtue bring abundant harvest in the minds of beings now cleansed, exhausted, and reduced by all the defects of samsara. May their minds today find rest. We did have this other chapter, which we don't have a lot of time for, but we will be revisiting this. This is like the first... Uh, extensive presentation of this subject matter of sort of uh, understanding the nature of reality and of mind that he will present uh, a little bit here in the root text in this chapter 10 that begins on page 115 and then uh, much further in the commentary which we'll come back to in a couple of weeks according to the plan a small question here. Please. On the stanza 67, on the, just have a hard time, I guess, with the appearances being pure, but uh, also they can be samsaric uh, appearances, no? Then they're not pure. Yes. Uh, the wisdom that brings deep insight destroys defilement. Once, once you have the wisdom that destroys and, and uh, defilement, then you experience the primordially unborn nature of appearance uh, as like reflections without intrinsic being appearing in all their ver various forms. 
thereby you understand their natural purity. So their, their natural purity um, is their, uh, their nature of not being, uh, not being uh, real and yet appearing. Not being, not not uh, not having any intrinsic essence, and yet appearing. What makes them pure? They're naturally pure. Of uh, there's nothing that makes them pure, which is you know sort of respond to your comment. There's sort of two parts to it. One is you can't make things pure that aren't impure. So the idea of natural purity is that phenomena, all of phenomena, all of reality, all of appearance, existence, is naturally pure in that it's, it's uh, primordially from the very start, from the very beginningless past, beyond the uh, conceptual constructions of existence, non-existence, defilement, and purification. So naturally pure is beyond pure and impure. This, uh, this uh, sort of... Non-dualistic. Yeah, non-dual way of trying to describe that situation. That's what naturally pure means, natural purity. Thank you. The fact that they arise dependently and therefore they have no essence that makes them independent, solid and uh, permanent, but um, they are impermanent, not separate, and um, uh, without any sort of own nature that makes them the way they are. And the next, this chapter 10 goes in depth through, through an explanation of this state of uh, being or non-being or the way the way things aren't, so to speak. One of the best lines is he says, uh, um, "You know with certainty that what is empty appears." So, chapter ten, one fifteen: the practitioner who thus unites the generation and perfection stages, which we'll go through next week, gains entry to the unborn, empty nature of phenomena. An understanding, an experience of this nature of phenomena, of the nature of phenomena as being unborn. They never, they were never created into being this or that. All, of, all phenomenal existence, all the things of samsara and nirvana from the first, without a self, and beyond our conceptual construction, as this or that. Through ignorantly clinging to them, however, beings wander in samsara. Yet in the very moment of arising, phenomena are empty in their nature. Know that they're like illusions. They're like dreams. They're not illusions, but they're like illusions. If they were illusions, then they would have some essence or emptiness as illusions, but they're like it. Though all the things appearing outwardly occur within the mind, they're not the mind itself. This is the this is the hardest part is to is to understand this presentation of the relationship between phenomena and mind in the ultimate sense of du non duality. It's very 
uh, confusing, very difficult. Uh, all things appearing outwardly occur within the mind, but they're not the mind itself. But neither are they something other than the mind. Although by force of habit, there may seem to be duality of apprehender and apprehended. Mind is the apprehender and the object of mind is that which is apprehended by mind. In uh, the moment it occurs, this duality has no reality. It is like a face and its reflection in a mirror. So the mind is like this mirror that reflects objects within it. And there is no inside and no outside. And it cannot be understood logically, basically. So this chapter is an exercise in trying to get us to release our logical, dualistic way of understanding, which I spoke about earlier, but, uh, referring to Zongsar Kensei Rimshe's comment of holding con conflicting views in the same mind. Although a face appears upon the surface of the mirror, it's not there. And yet no other thing has cast its form upon the glass. While not being there, its likeness appears and is perceived as different from the mirror. But know that manifold phenomena are all like this. If left unexamined, things are quite convincing. And this is this traditional scheme of three levels of analysis of phenomena in the Madhyamaka tradition of the middle way of understanding the nature of, of reality. Uh, when unexamined, things are quite convincing. We believe that things are like really there if we don't examine them. If we investigate them, they become elusive. We can't really find them. Their entity disappears. The, uh, the partless particles dissolve into, into quarks and then into strings and then into bow ties and then into, I don't know, Botox or something. Who knows what? Uh, when thoroughly examined, they transcend all speech, all thought, and all formulation. So when you go further in that analysis after not finding things as being existing and the way they appear, and you examine further, you realize that they still appear. And the only way you can understand this is by, by uh, letting go of the mind that thinks that uh, appearance and being real are the same thing and the and come to the realization that appearance is emptiness appearances are emptiness only emptiness appears only empty phenomena appear we never see non-empty phenomena the only thing that ever appears is emptiness Uh, let's see, whether as existing or as non-existing, there's no finding them. Neither are they beyond, nor are they not beyond the ontological extremes. So getting beyond the, the, the fourfold uh, tetralemma of possibilities of existing, non-existing, both and neither. It is in the manner of illusion that they're arising and they're dwelling and they're ceasing. All appear, but from the very instant they occur, the same arising and the rest, meaning the abiding and the ceasing, have no intrinsic being. They're like the water of a mirage or the moon reflected in a pool. In particular, the six impure migrations, the six realms appear, but they have no true existence. They are deceptive forms, the products of habitual tendencies, the result of clinging to the reality of appearances. 
like falling hairs that those with visual ailments see, floaters in the eyes. And just as those who wish to be restored must, purif must purify their phlegm, in the same way those who wish to dissipate illusion must clear away the cataracts of ignorance. The antidote for this is self-cognizing primordial wisdom. So uh, wisdom that goes beyond conceptual mind, and that is beyond... Uh, uh, that it goes beyond object-oriented cognition, self-cognizing. Wisdom that cognizes itself. Well, this means you come to clear conviction. So, so this wisdom, it, it, it does what he said at the beginning about the mind, about uh, they occur within their mind, but they're not the mind. Neither are they something other than the mind. And that's the nature of self-cognizing primordial this sort of contradictory nature. And this means you come to clear conviction of the empty nature of samsara and its habits, and you know with certainty that what is empty does appear. Great line. The only thing that ever appears is emptiness. Can, can you give the section headers for where you are, again, the problem of... Eight. I'm in uh, section header eight in this uh, chapter. In chapter 10, neither dwelling in uh, neither of the two extremes. You understand the non-duality of appearance and emptiness and thus you know the sense of the two truths. By dispelling both extremes and striving for the middle way, you come to freedom in the sky-like state, abiding neither in samsara existence nor in nirvana peace. So this is the attainment of the Mahayana version of uh, nirvana, which is non-abiding nirvana, your type of nirvana of the Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas is the nirvana that exists in uh, distinction to samsara. It's dual, dualistically related as the opposite of samsara. But here we have some, a type of nirvana that goes beyond samsara and nirvana. So it's neither existence nor peace. This is ultimate reality, sublime and quintessential, the fundamental nature of the natural great perfection, NGP. Appearance in itself does neither good nor harm, but clinging to appearance binds you in existence. This is uh, like the, the biography of Tilopa and, uh, sorry, of Naropa, where he studies with Tilopa and Tilopa has him go through these uh, major trials where he experiences one after another for 12 different year trials over 12 years, different ways of being uh, physically destroyed and harmed. And uh, Tilopa says to Naropa, basically pretty much each time, he says, it's not appearances that bind us to samsara. It's our attachment that binds us to samsara. There's no need to search through manifold appearances. Just cut the root of mind that clings to them. The source of samsara's belief in itself. The mind does seem to be, and yet lacks real existence. So this, this uh, an enigmatic quality of the mind of seeming to be there, yet not having any entityness to it. And it's in being that way. It's the quintessence or the ultimate uh, 
version of appearances, appearances which are emptiness appearing. And so the mind also has this quality, but, but the mind is more uh, uh, vivid and accessible in this quality to us than material appearances are. The mind has this quality of being very evident. Like We know our mind. We know what's in our mind. We know what our mind is doing. We know how we're feeling in our mind. And yet, we can't find our mind. So it becomes this analogy for the nature of all phenomena. Uh, when searched for, it's not found. When looked for, it's not seen. No color does it have, no shape. It cannot be identified. And traditionally, when one does uh, Mahamudra and Dzogchen practice, the early early phase of that practice, sort of the preliminary practice, is to search for the mind and and uh, basically identify, acknowledge the fact that we we feel like the mind is there. We feel like our mind has a place and a uh, a shape. Probably not a color, but they always include color. But it feels like our mind is there, like there's something there. And so the first phase of uh, those practices is to search for the mind. And by searching for it, become convinced that it's not there in the way that we think of things as being there in our world. Uh, it's not outside or inside throughout the and, and uh, there's this famous Mahayana Sutra where the Buddha does this whole interchange with uh, Ananda about where is his mind? Is it on the outside or the inside? Where does consciousness occur? It's really actually a very cool sutra. Um, throughout the triple time, it is not born, it does not cease, it's not located anywhere on this side or on that of samsara. Groundless, rootless, it's not a thing, there's no pointing to it. Mind is inconceivable. And then it goes through the you know more ways that it's inconceivable. The past, the present, the, the future mind, all of them can't be found. So don't do not let the mind search for the mind, just let it be. So at some point you exhaust this this uh, incessant need to uh, be able to identify things as being something or other by going through this exercise. You get reach the point of just letting the mind be, just letting the mind be, releasing the mind from its effort to concretize phenomena. Thoughts negating or affirming are themselves the objects of the momentary consciousness at the very moment of their appearing. They're not outside nor indeed within. The object that is sought perversely is the subject seeking. So the object in our mind is not different from the subject in the mind. We have this illusory feeling of there being like a, a, a subject qual or a perceiver and a perceived in our mind. But all of that happens in our mind. Um, in searching for itself, there's never any finding. Primordially unborn and uncontrived, it does not dwell, it doesn't cease. The mind itself throughout the three times is neither ground nor root. It's a state of emptiness, but being the foundation for unobstructed manifold arising, it appears unceasingly. Yet it is not a thing endowed with features. It has no permanent existence. Yet to its arising, there's no end. So this, this 
uh, illogical, contradictory quality of not being anything but appearing incessantly. Uh, therefore, it's not a nihilistic emptiness. Neither is it both of these, nor is it neither. So it's not a nihilistic emptiness, nor neither is it both of these, meaning not there or there, existent or non-existent, nor is it neither existent or non-existent. There's no describing it, even though he's been describing it for many, many pages. It does not exist as this or that. In no way, therefore, can it be identified. Its nature should be understood as pure, primordially. Again, this idea of naturally pure, primordially pure, uh, beyond dualism, beyond distinctions, from the very first, before our dualistic mind lays its trip on it. It's not there when you examine it. When you look for your mind, you can't actually grasp it or identify it. It is not there when you do not examine it. It has no other nature. In the primordial essence of the mind, you can find no good or bad, no taking or rejecting or hope or fear. That primordially pure mind is beyond the defilement and non-defilement. What use is there, therefore, in checking and investigating it? So give up the sort of uh, early state. You know, now he's talking about progressing further in the practice, so going beyond the stage of constantly checking our mind. Are we being mindful? Are we lost? What what need is there to check and investigate it? It doesn't exist. Do not seek it anxiously throughout the three times. The mind is stirred up by ideas which are like chaff. It is agitated by distractions. There's no access to this nature. But if you rest correctly in the pure, accomplished mind beyond arriving and departing, whence there's nothing to remove, to which there's nothing to be added, if you rest in primal wisdom, all creating free from stain, you will behold this nature as it is. So he gives the instruction on how to then experience this bizarre nature of mind. And we're a little bit overboard, so let's stop there. And uh, we'll revisit this next week. We'll pick up from there, even though it's pretty much it's a little bit repetitive, you got to admit. Uh, but we're on, we finished stanza 15 out of uh, 37. Comments, suggestions, questions, noble silence. Uh, the weather, anything about the weather? It's a beautiful day today. Finally, it's really nice. Rather, one of those things that everybody talks about, but nobody ever does anything about. Anyway, enough goofing around. We're, we're over our time limits, so. We'll try to make it up next week, but we'll, uh, as I said in the emails, not rush through things and, uh, if we need. We'll expand so that we cover it all as much as, as, as much as we can within reason.
any final comments, final last words? Yes, if anyone's doing Tonglen, you can do Tonglen for the raccoon that we're going to have to evict from our rooftop under our eaves. <laughs> Thank you for that. Whatever pain and suffering they might endure, hopefully it will be humane. <laughs> On that, let's uh, dedicate the marriage. <laughs> Conclude. Feel free to chime in and turn off your uh, mute. By this merit, man. Defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of sickness and death, from the ocean of Zephara, may I be <laughs> Love the puppy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next week. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. From far and near. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Emily, you got it? I got it. <laughs> Where are you now? I'm in Massachusetts now. Back in Massachusetts. Yep. Full New England tour. <laughs> oh, all around. So it's, yep. it's warm up there too? It's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and we're right on the water here. We can go swimming in the, in the ocean. So it's pretty great. Great. So is that where you're going to live or you have to? No, this is my um, stepdad and my mom have this, this cool old summer house here. So we'll be here while we look for our new, new place. And so we'll probably go back to Westchester for like, you know, just to get our stuff basically at some point. Things up. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, really crazy. So when yeah. school start for him in uh, August or September? He starts working technically in July, but, you know, not doing a lot. And then school starts in September, and it's still unclear whether it will be – oh, this is all recording.